Father, we are grateful to you for Christ's great love for us and your great love for us manifested in the gospel through him, which is from all eternity and to all eternity and which will prove itself out in all eternity. We are even an evidence of your love as we're gathered here today around this table to remember Christ's death, his broken body, and his blood. Give us wisdom to perceive your love as it is, to perceive our need for what it is, and to cling to you more tightly for our time together tonight in your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> There's no sniffle suppressor uh, on this mic, so please excuse me if I sniffle a little bit tonight. Now I've drawn your attention to it, so you'll maybe notice it, whereas maybe you previously would not have noticed it. My apologies, it's going through the family. Open with me in your Bibles to the book of Hosea. Or let me rephrase that. Please open with me to the index of your Bibles where you can find out where Hosea is and then turn there in your Bible. We'll start in chapter 14. If you're turning there, as you're turning there, here's how C.S. Lewis critiqued the way we tend to conveniently imagine God. An impersonal God? Well and good. A subjective God of beauty, truth and goodness inside our own heads, better still. A formless life force surging through us, a vast power which we can trap, tap, best of all. But God himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at an infinite speed, the hunter, king, husband, that's quite another matter. And that God is the matter of our sermon this evening from the book of Hosea. We'll be preaching, really meditating on Hosea 14, verse 4. You can call it our theme verse for the night. Uh, we're going to sort of work out from that passage and, and hear the whole book's message. But to begin our sermon, let's read all of chapter 14. It's not too long, and it will be helpful to do so. Hosea chapter 14. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria, Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. And they shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things, and whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Well, we put a premium on free movement the free movement of money, the free movement in travel. I still need to do the TSA pre-check. The free movement of our cars 
When free movement is hindered, we are frustrated. The free movement of our arms and legs. We put a high premium on these things. So the Lord puts a premium on the free movement of something. In fact, there is nothing more that the Lord desires than the free movement of his love toward, at, and for his people. I was tumbling around in the Bible uh, preparing for what I might preach this evening. Lord's Supper sermons are usually one-offs. It can't be terribly hard to get to the cross from a text we might preach at a Lord's Supper service, but they don't usually tuck into a series, and so it's nice to find a passage that needs preaching, a passage I haven't preached before, a passage I would want to hear preached. Then I came across this line in Hosea, I will love them freely, and I swear I've never heard anything as beautiful as that. I will love them freely. What a beautiful way to capture the heart of God in the Old Testament, in his promise of the gospel. The Lord said it, I will love them freely. That is, without hindrance, without reservation, without restraint. That's the free movement of God's love toward his people. And this line captures sweetly the climax of this little book which is about no little theme, the love of God for his people. And this is the subject of our exposition and meditation tonight, the love of God, freely given. Some of you may have read this book before. You'll know that Hosea is not exactly like other books in the Bible. I suppose no book is like exactly, exactly like any other book in the Bible, but Hosea is unique in a number of ways. It's, it's a bizarre book. It's a bit schizophrenic. It's a deeply emotional book. It's bizarre because of the commands that God gives. You'll hear them. It's schizophrenic because of the gear-crunching way it shifts from horrifying judgment in one breath to beautiful salvation, hope, from anger to affection. And it's emotional because, well, you'll see, there is no book that better takes you into the emotional life of God than the book of Hosea. It is at times as though we're reading from the very pages of the diary of our Lord. And if it helps you remember those three starter observations, Hosea is bizarro, schizo, and emo. Okay? Let me write that down. On its own, the line, I will love them freely, doesn't sound difficult either to understand or to believe, but I'm convinced that it's like a peek hole into the light of heaven. You won't see all of heaven from here. Our eyes aren't that good enough, but you'll see some. So we'll meditate on this verse in four steps. We'll travel around the book a bit as we do. A bunch of this will be on the back screen. If you've got your Bibles, I'll give you cues. You're only a page or two away at a time. First, the characters in this love story. The characters in this love story. And if you didn't know that Hosea is a love story, you're about to get surprised by a book in the Bible you didn't know was here. Who are we talking about here? I will love them freely. Who is the I and who is the them? Who is the giver of this love and who is the receiver of this love? Well, in the immediate context, I is the Lord and them is the people of God, Israel in the Old Testament. But of course, this is chapter 14. And by this point in this particular book, a lot of character development has been done. So chapter one, turn there with me. We'll have us answer this question in a more vivid way to say the least. We'll read verses 1 through 9. 
This is how the book begins. We're backing into this. We could have begun with this. We're backing into it. Hosea 1, 1 through 9. The, Lord, the word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war, or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned No Mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name Not My People, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Two characters emerge. First, there's Hosea. Hosea lives at a time of growing prosperity for Israel. The Lord came to him during a reign of a good king. These days were rivaled only by the days of King David and King Solomon. Israel's enemies were either weakened or they were distracted, so prosperity was up and the pressure was off. But typically, as we might expect, Increased prosperity led to decreased faithfulness on the part of God's people. And so Hosea lives at a time of growing corruption, the oppression of the poor, and there are lists throughout this book that get concrete. It's an ugly time, man on man, between God's people. This leads to growing calamity. Stability devolved into instability with a rotating door on the throne with assassinations, military coups, divisions over with whom to form an alliance, Egypt or Assyria. The Lord wasn't on the table. And all this has roots in a growing betrayal of the Lord himself. Israel's first job was to love the Lord, their God, with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind. Have no other gods before the one true and living God. But of course they abandoned the Lord for the gods of neighboring nations. And this leads us to a second character, Gomer. In verse 1, you'd think you'd love to be Hosea. The Lord came to Hosea and spoke. By verse 2, you would hate to be Hosea. He is given the charge to marry a prostitute. All the spiritual trouble in Hosea's day is represented in this woman. The Lord is giving his people an object lesson. Did you catch it in verse 2? Go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. I'm going to show you what's happening here, the Lord says. Go do this and everyone watch. Some prophets have a message to preach. Some prophets had a message to show. Some prophets were a message. Jonah was a message. Uh, Hosea is a message as well. And so in this living parable, Hosea represents the Lord and Gomer represents Israel. She's no virtuous woman precisely because Israel is no virtuous people. In 4.1 sums it up well. There are three deficiencies mentioned in chapter 4 verse 1. 
There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. Faithfulness, love, knowledge of God. You can highlight that one there because the words faithfulness and love and knowledge will appear multiple times over in different ways throughout the book. These are the major deficiencies that Israel has. Her love is like a morning cloud, he'll say. It's gone. She's faithless to the covenant, just like Adam was faithless in the garden. And they offer sacrifices, but what God wants is for them to know him. It's like they offer sacrifices and don't care about him at all, paying him no attention even as they do. Three deficiencies, love, knowledge, and faithfulness, repeated over and over again. And so their children get special names. Jezreel sounds pretty enough, except it would sort of be like naming somebody Twin Towers, it had a certain historical connotation. There are better and worse baby names out there and mom and dad get to decide which is which, except when the world decides. Uh, if you look at these trends for baby names over the years, which baby names are popular at what times? Uh, there are some baby names my wife would refuse to allow me to offer up for one of our children and we settled on the ones that we've got and we love them, but it took some work. But you get on these websites and you watch trends over time and Hitler, and then it drops right off after World War II. And then there's a few people naming their babies Hitler after that. What is going on? So these are not good names. No mercy. Not my people. Jezreel. Hosea and Gomer, a pretty messed up marriage. The Lord and his people, also a pretty messed up marriage. And so one thing we learn already is that our relationship with God... Our relationship with God as his people is as a wife to a husband. It is like a marriage. Not in every way, but in meaningful ways. And we may think of ourselves in relationship to God as subjects to a king, as those under authority, as citizens to a sovereign. All of that would be correct. We rejoice in the sovereignty of God here because the Bible gives it to us as something to rejoice in and to take comfort in, that is just right. But we ought to also think of ourselves as married to the Lord, as husband and wife. And a truly biblical thought, relationship, understanding to God will be well-rounded. So consider how you think of God and how you relate with God. This is an important way. That's the characters for this love story. Hosea and Gomer, who represent the Lord and his people. Now, second, the cost of this kind of love. The cost of this kind of love will mostly be in chapters 2 and 3 for this point. God says in 14.4, I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. Love, anger, on these pages, God is a God in great turmoil. Great turmoil. There is a tension in the emotional life of God here, and we cannot escape it. There's a legitimate hindrance to the free love of God toward his people, and that hindrance is sin. It is a major problem. We'll think about anger, and then about his love, and then about the cost versus anger a heartbroken, angry. Turn to chapter 2 with me. Start reading in verse 2. This is exactly why he uses the adultery, adultery for this, his image, and it's why we have chapter 2. 
chapter 2. We'll read the, almost the whole thing through verse 13. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife and I'm not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her also I will have no mercy because they are children, upon her children also I'll have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. For the mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers but not overtake them. She shall seek them but shall not find them. She shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then uh, than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain and the wine and the oil and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers." And no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her myrrh, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the bales, when she, uh, when she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, Went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. A picture of all of us chasing after sin with its promises, which are empty. This almost feels like too much as I read it. I cringe. Should I have read the whole thing? Maybe I could have read a part. I decided to read the whole thing. There's more in the book, actually. Couldn't the Holy Spirit have picked a tamer and less graphic illustration? Well, sure he could have. And it would not have had the same effect. If any of this seems a bit inappropriate, well, sin is inappropriate. If any of it seems a bit shocking, well, sin is shocking. Graphic and shocking is the point. Israel's sin really is like whoring. And how God feels about that really is like an enraged, heart-torn, betrayed lover. It's as close as we can get to the feeling that God has when we betray him, as people betrayed him in the old covenant in sin. We'll come back to chapter 2 in a moment, but there's an interesting passage I want to show you in chapter 11, so turn there. Chapter 11 is like the Lord's diary as he reflects on the history of his relationship with this, his wife, Israel. Hosea 11, we'll read 1 through 4. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms. 
but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them, and I fed them. These Baals are the fertility gods of neighboring nations in the ancient Near East. They demanded prostitution and sexual encounters as a way to activate the gods in heaven who would feed you with rain. And so Israel would participate in the worship of these gods, provoking them to provide. All along, the Lord is providing for his people. and They give him no credit. The more they were called, the more they went away. How tragic is that? Their problem is greater than their slavery in Egypt, for they were delivered from slavery in Egypt. And that's part of what the Bible story is teaching us, is that they needed more than physical redemption. They needed a solution greater than an exodus from Egypt as well. Yet so many years later, they're much farther away still, and God says this in verse 8 of chapter 11. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? Listen how loving this is. How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. How beautiful is that? God is like us in that he's like a husband. He is not like us in that he is God. And that's a good thing for us. This tension in God's spirit will ultimately cost him a very great deal. Back to chapter 2 now. We'll start reading in verse 14. So we've read about 13 verses of pretty angry, betrayed lover rage. And now, verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, a change, and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Echor a door of hope. And there she shall answer in the days of her youth as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the creeping things in the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, the war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety." And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast, listen for it, love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. God will bring about the reversal of all that is wrong in his people. Betrothed in love, betrothed in faithfulness, betrothed to know the Lord. This chapter, which began in a fit of rage, ends with a new name in verse 23. I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. And so you have this certain judgment, like a freight train, 
and then does a 180 without a moment's notice and you have salvation. And it actually is the case that God is that angry at sin and it actually is the case that, that, is that God is that committed in love and compassion and tenderness to his people. But there's another layer to this beautiful parable. Look to chapter three. James Montgomery Boyce has said that this chapter is the greatest chapter in the Bible. I've read all the chapters in the Bible. I haven't compared them all. I like others more, but this is a really, really great chapter. (laughs) And it may be the greatest chapter in the Bible. We've seen that Hosea was to marry and accept his wife, Gomer. Uh, That's obnoxious. Now we see that he is to pursue her at cost to the end. Hosea 3, 1 through 2. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and an omer and a lethic of barley. Bought. Bought. In a word, we're told a number of things that she was owned, not only that she was a prostitute, but she was likely pimped out. And the cost wasn't but a bit more than half the average of a bond slave at the time. That's how much she was worth. She was at the end, she was at the bottom. Hosea bought her with shekels and some other things, which means he probably had to scrounge this together. She was at the bottom and Hosea bought her. And if cakes of raisins seem petty, you're not missing anything. These are probably part of worship rituals. They were probably part of ritual for a God that doesn't exist. They're actually more petty than they sound to our own ears. Cakes of raisins as opposed to God. So the Lord pursues his people when they are the farthest away and at whatever cost is required. God's love is free, but it is costly. I'm not certain that this purchase is intended specifically to prefigure Christ's sacrifice. I haven't just personally spent enough time in Hosea or commentaries to evaluate this. What it does indicate is the extent to which God will go to get his people. Where else can we look for God's anger and love to meet than on the cross? On the cross, Christ is going all the way to get us. And think about this. The purchase of his people was ultimately much more expensive. And the payment wasn't owed to a pimp, but to the Lord himself to appease his own wrath. The love that we see here that is sort of obnoxious and doesn't make sense Oh, very much more is God's obnoxious love for us, even his unreasonable love for us through Christ. Ultimately, the cost this kind of free love requires is nothing less than the cross. So we've seen the characters for the story, and we've seen the cost of this kind of love. Now third, the change this love summons, the change this love summons. The Lord has been summoning his people, wooing them, alluring them. That's actually what he said he'd do. And it actually works because they come. We don't have the interactions between Hosea and Gomer, but as the story goes, the wife remains with her husband and not by force. 
We can even say that it's in Hosea's paying for Gomer that Gomer is allured back, astounded at the love that one would have for her. But what does this change look like up close? Does the book bring us up close to the change in a person that belongs to God in returning to him? Let's go back to chapter 14. We'll start at the beginning of chapter 14. We'll read verses 1 through 3. A beautiful portrait here of repentance. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take your words, take with you words and return to the Lord and say to him, take away all my iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. We will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. It's neat. He, he gives them words to say in their repentance. Here, here's, here are your words. Take with you words. Quote, it's like the first sinner's prayer. So speaking to those of you who have turned away from the Lord or to those who have never turned to him in the first place, there's some takeaways here. And for all of us in repentance, for sin, to seek forgiveness, to ask, take my iniquity away, to acknowledge our sin, to renounce false trusts. Assyria shall not save us. We shall say no more. Our God, to the work of our hands, we do not trust any longer in our own goodness for acceptance before the Lord. We have nothing good apart from his grace to bring to him. So it's all him. And receive your status as a child of the Lord your Father, it may seem a little random for him to speak about an orphan finding a father at the end of this string of verses. He does not mean orphans as we would normally use the term. Throughout the book, he's talked about his people being cut off as his children, no more, orphaned. But here, he calls them to himself. And he's a father to orphans. The Lord allures us. He has purchases us. And he breaks us and he turns us to himself. This is the change that is summoned by love. One more. The people this love creates. The people this love creates. Look at 14 verse 4. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. The book of Hosea is not just about better grasping the nature of sin as spiritual adultery. It's that. It's not even just about grasping the love of God, which loves in spite of our spiritual adultery. It is that. It's about the love of God that removes our spiritual adultery. It's about the love of God that does not settle even merely to cancel the debt of our sin and remove our iniquities, but actually transform us into the people that he wants, into the bride that he wants. Faithfulness, loveliness, love, and the knowledge of the Lord. He makes us faithful. He heals our apostasy, our faithlessness, our lovelessness, and our forgetfulness. One writer spoke of this freedom this way, freely means of my own will and my own heart, quite independently of them or of their deserts. Reverently, let me put it this way, I will love them because I cannot help loving them. That is God. And it is because of that deep thing in the nature of God that he first said, 
I will heal their apostasy. It is because of God's great, ferocious, energetic, freight train love for his people that he saves any. And he doesn't just remove your guilt. He makes you a new person to walk in newness of life from death to life, a new creation. Pick your biblical image. They're all over the Bible. He changes you so that you aren't the spiritual adulterer you would be otherwise. It would be a mistake to read Hosea and draw a straight line from the people of God on the ground in Hosea's day to us and to chastise ourselves for sin as though we have the same problem that Israel had in Hosea's day. It's simply not the case. This is under the old covenant before the spirit, before new hearts, before Christ came and died and was raised. And it's teaching us precisely our need for Jesus Christ, a son of David to come and to live a righteous life and to die for us so that he can make us new. So as we look to Hosea, there are many takeaways here. We do look to Hosea and we look to Gomer and we see in Gomer where we came from. And we also see in Gomer flashes of what we have in our own heart and all of our sin. But when we look at Gomer, we can also thank the Lord that we aren't Gomer. And we don't do that because we're great, but because of who God has made us to be by his grace. Ultimately, this cure for apostasy, this cure for the problem of continuing to run from God is what we need. So what does this healing look like? What do God's people look like when they love him and know him and are faithful to him? Love and know and are faithful to him. What do God's people look like when they are so freely loved by God because it does change us? Well, look, at me, look with me to verses five through eight. Or excuse me, I should say, look, listen, taste, smell, and touch verses five through eight with me. It's a multi-sensory description agricultural description of what happens when the love of God breaks in on a life. I will be like the dew to Israel. That's the Lord. Now here's us. And so he shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is, not I, who, it is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. The Lord is the ultimate gardener and he is at work among us. And he is at work in you. As you look to Gomer and as you watch Hosea love her, you have more hope than merely to be forgiven, but to be changed by God, to be beautiful for him. This is what we get when we go to the Lord. The blossom and the root and the shoots and the fragrance, all of it. Over time, it gets more and more beautiful and the whoring out to other gods becomes more and more impossible to imagine. With you, I've been thinking a lot about Victoria, the 10-year-old that was brutally murdered a week ago. We will not speak of what happened to her. I've been thinking a lot about the soul of her mother and of the boyfriend and of the boyfriend's covenant. 
uh, boyfriend's cousin, just how corrupt a soul can become is terrifying to me. I don't think I've ever been so close to so gruesome a murder uh, my life in a city I've lived in that I was aware of. The world wants us to say that we start good or we start neutral and we go bad because of external forces. But the Bible says that we go bad because of the sin that's in us, because of our apostasy, our propensity to wander, our love of idols. And what you see in the news and stories like that are what happens to a soul when it has fed on an idol's promises for too long. And it is terrifying where sin leads the soul when it gets what it wants. The walking dead. This picture here is exactly the opposite. It's of a beautiful, well-watered, flourishing soul I, the Lord says him, an evergreen cypress, from me comes your fruit. What is the explanation for such horrifying evil in the world? It is that men and women do not know God. The human soul can go bad because the human soul is bad apart from salvation and God healing our apostasy is what we need. God is not an impersonal force Praise the Lord, he is not an impersonal force. He is very much alive. He is not distant, he is very much engaged. And so, is God pulling at the other end of your rope? To use the image from our opening quote, don't resist him, go with him. A command you don't like is God pulling at the other end of the rope. Lean into it, obey him, trust him. Is he approaching at infinite speed? Welcome him. Is he hunting you down? Do not hide. Is he offering you his kingdom? Accept. Is he pursuing you as a husband wrecked for the affection of his bride? Stay. The love of God is the most outlandish thing about Christianity. It's the love of God that has given us a story that is this bizarre, schizophrenic, and emotional. And it's the reality of God's love that gave us this promise, I will love them freely. And today, right here among us, that's exactly what he's doing without hindrance, without reservation, and without restraint. And it's this love that led Jesus to the upper room on the night of his arrest to institute the Lord's Supper because it was his love that would lead Jesus to the cross to give his body and his blood for us, the true cost for sinners. And so now we come together to the Lord's table. Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper in order that we might remember his death and proclaim his death until he returns. That's his purpose in it. And as we consider the bread and the cup before us, the bread represents the broken body of Christ on the tree, suffering the cost that was required for sinners. And his blood shed represents that cost as well. Scripture tells us that he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Just a reminder that this table is for those who know Jesus Christ as their savior from sin that are wed to the Lord as a bride to a husband. And so if that's not you, we are so grateful that you're here. The Lord would have you here, but the Lord would have you to refrain from taking the bread and the cup tonight. 
It really is for those who are joined to the Lord and walking in faith and in fellowship with a local church. In fact, this is what the Lord wants you to do, is to watch and to pray. And we would pray for you that you would come to him in faith. For those of you who do know Christ, we're commanded to examine ourselves as we take of this. This is a serious matter. So in a moment, we'll bow our heads to reflect on the meaning of Christ's death. And if you're not a believer, reflect on the meaning of Christ's death as well. But if, but if you are a believer, reflect on his death for you and your salvation. And then after a few moments, I'll pray, and you can come to any one of the tables up front or in the back. We've got seven around the room. Take the bread there and then take the cup back to your seat. We'll eat that after a bit. Let's bow our head in examination now. I'll pray in a few moments.